This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. And here we are. Okay, um, so where we left off last time, I was kind of like midstream on just narrating what actually happens in Israel's history. Um, I'm trying to do that in as, as kind of capsule summary kind of way. Um, and where I left off was basically how we see the failures of Israel's kings. Um, the failures of Israel's kings to live up to the, uh, to the calling to which they had, which was to magnify the kingship of Yahweh. Um, the kings of Israel were always to point away from themselves to the kingship of Yahweh. But instead what happens is in their failure, in the sinfulness of those kings, they actually... Uh, they they uh, detract from the glory of Yahweh. They draw attention to themselves, and they turn the, they turn Israel into a nation like the other nations. Instead of being uh, the instrument of Yahweh's redemption of the nations, Israel becomes something else entirely. becomes a nation like other nations. So we already see the failure of these kings in Saul, um, who does not obey God and is rejected. Um, but God redeems even this unholy desire that the Israelites have for kingship, for a king, a king like the, the rest of the nations, by giving the people David, who is very seriously imperfect, right? The story doesn't cover up any of that. Um, but the way in which David is declared to be a man after God's own heart is that uh, he has the proper desire in his expression of the kingship, which is to magnify the kingship of God through his own kingship. So this is actually an important point to just kind of pause for a second and talk about. Um, so, like, Christ says, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect, right? And, and Paul talks about the perfection of being a Christian. Um, and it's important to understand what this term means, because for us, perfect means flawless, right? It means without blemish. Um, but actually, that's not what the word means in Scripture. The word means fitted for its purpose or conformed to the purpose for which it was designed, Okay, so this is something that has achieved what it's meant to achieve. Um, so it doesn't actually mean flawless, right? It doesn't mean like if you're a Christian, therefore you do not sin anymore, right? It means that your purpose as a Christian is to glorify God in everything that you do. And so to be perfect means to begin to conform oneself to that pattern, right? That's what it, mean, that's what it would mean to be perfect uh, according to Scripture. So the way in which David's kingship is perfect is that it is a kingship that is ultimately pointed away from itself to magnify the kingship of God. So therefore, David can be declared a man after God's own heart, even though he is clearly not without sin, right? In fact, his sin is uh, among the greatest of the kings of Israel, right? I mean, in, uh, not only in his seduction of Bathsheba, but also in his murder of Uriah, right? And for which he is called to account um, in, this, in the scriptures themselves very dramatically in uh, 2 Samuel. Okay, um, but after David comes Solomon, uh, and Solomon begins his kingship uh, as uh, a person of great wisdom. In fact, that's in fact the, the gift that he asked for um, from Yahweh. Um, but by the end of his life, right, Solomon has defected from that wisdom. He's intermarried with the Canaanite tribes around him, and he's turning to worship their gods. He allows for their God, the, uh, the shrines of their gods to be built in Israel. Um, so, you know, even though Solomon is privileged to build the first temple, by the end of his life, you can, you can see the disintegration of his kingship and, and its, uh, its defection from its central purpose to magnify the kingship of God. 
Uh, but it's really with Solomon's son Rehoboam that things begin to take a turn for the worst. So Israel goes to Rehoboam and says, Your father put a heavy yoke on us, but now lighten the harsh labor and the heavy yoke he put on us, and we will serve you. So Rehoboam answers, uh, Go away for three days and then come back to me, and I'll give you my answer. And so Rehoboam then consults with the elders, and they say quite wisely, If today you will be a servant to these people and serve them and give them a favorable answer, they will always be your servants. But he rejects this wisdom and foolishly entrusts himself to the young men who he had grown up with, like his gang, his posse, his homies, his entourage. He listens to these people, uh, and they say, go and tell them my little, my little finger is thicker than my father's waist. This is really not what the text says, right? I mean, kind of insert your own phallic you know, uh, uh, swagger here, and then you'd understand what he's actually saying. My father laid on you a heavy yoke. I will make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips. I will scourge you with scorpions. And so then it says, the king did not listen to the people. But this turn of events was from the Lord. Right? So the, the, this is a strange expression. Like what, like what does it mean that this turn of events was from the Lord? Right? In the providence of God, God uses the desire that the Israelites had for kingship. Right? He uses it for his own purposes. But the desire itself was not from the Lord, actually. It says that very clearly in 1 Samuel, that the desire was because the, the Israel wanted to be another nation. It wanted to be another ethnicity, like the other tribes that surrounded it. But that's not how Israel was created, actually. Uh, Israel was, was created as a people, as a nation that would magnify the Lord, and then so therefore draw the nations to God. But it fails to do that. And so it, in its desire to be an ethnicity like other ethnicities, a tribe like other tribes, uh, it defects from the Lord. And so, so the Lord turns this desire towards what the ultimate desire of the people was, right? So it, it gives them over to that desire. It says this turn of events was from the Lord, that Rehoboam would, uh, would reject the wisdom of the elders and go against the people. So then it says, uh, so Israel in the north rejects Rehoboam's rule, and there's a fracture in the, t- in the kingdom of Israel. So the, is- the kingdom of Israel becomes two kingdoms that are permanently separated from each other all throughout the book, the books of Kings. Um, the northern kingdom, uh, that's... that's uh, that's it's centered around a, a different shrine, a different, a different uh, throne. And then the kingdom of Judah in the south, which is centered around Jerusalem and the, the, um, the throne of David and the temple. And, and it says, uh, so Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. So the history of kings thereafter is a descent into just a really gloomy uh, idolatry, adultery, and murder. And makes for unremittingly grim reading with just a few exceptions. And as Israel descends further and further into sin and into rebellion against God, as Israel's kings look less and less like the kingship of God, we move closer to the curse that is proclaimed in the covenant as it's originally given in Deuteronomy, right before they, they enter the promised land. which says, if you defile the land, it will vomit you out as it vomited out the nations that were before you. So again, this, this kind of demonstrates for us that, the, that, um, you know, that that call to cleanse the promised land was really a call to evict those nations that were there before, the land would vomit them out. Uh, and, so, and so likewise, if Israel fails to, to keep the covenant and becomes like the nations that they displaced, then they themselves would be vomited out, right? So the prophets come, uh, are, are, are raised up in Israel um, during this period of the kings to decry the wickedness of Israel and in particularly of Israel's kings. Uh, and and the, the, the thing that they highlight um, as a central way in which Israel has defected from the covenant is in their oppression of the poor, right? So the, in the oppression of the poor, we see the result of a heart that has become turned towards idolatry and adultery and murder. 
so Amos 2.7 says, For three sins of Israel, Amos is a prophet in the northern kingdom of Israel. That's, that's just before the, uh, the exile of the northern kingdom. Um, he says, For three sins of Israel, even for four, I will not relent. They sell the innocent for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They grind the faces of the poor into the dust and deny justice to the oppressed. So this is what Israel looks like. Um, once it has defected away from its allegiance to God and become allied with the, with the gods of the nations, which has become a, a idolatrous, it also becomes an oppressing nation. Because it, it, it actually falls, it succumbs to the anxiety that, that, uh, of dependence, right? The anxiety that comes from being in a dependent situation and a desire to grasp for ourselves the means of controlling our own existence. And that always centers around money and our use of money. And so then Israel becomes greedy, and it becomes, uh, it becomes an oppressor of, of the poor, uh, which is inevitably what happens when the heart turns to idolatry. So they think they're strong, right? The Israelites think they're strong by having seized you know, the um, means of control for themselves. Uh, but, but this is what Amos says. He says, Yet I destroyed the Amorites before them, though they were as tall as cedar and as strong as the oaks. Right? So if you think you are strong in yourself, the Lord opposes you. Right? That's, that's exactly what Amos is saying. So this is exactly what happens. The northern kingdom is first conquered and its leaders are brought into exile by the powerful Assyrian Empire. Now, I, I, talked, I talked to you guys about Assyria before, right? Assyria is the great terror of uh, this middle part of the scriptures. Is that the, um, the kingdom of Assyria is unlike... So there's all, you know, the history of, history of the nations is really the history of empire, right? Um, empires coming and growing and then being defeated and, and uh, turning into nothing and then another empire taking its place, right? So... Um, before the Assyrians are the Hittites, and Hittites would, uh, would the, way, the way that they would proceed was to uh, conquer smaller nations, right, but then to impose terms of surrender that were beneficial to those nations, right? So then when they would enter into these treaties with those nations, the vassal states that were their, um, their servant nations, they would have this long preamble that says, here's everything that you know, your lords, the Hittites, have done for you. Now, therefore, obey. And if you obey, here's the blessings that will come from your covenant. And here are the curses that will come if you fail to keep the terms of the covenant. Well, this is exactly the pattern, right, of, of Exodus and Deuteronomy, right? They are, they are vassal treaties that are modeled upon the Hittite treaties, okay? There's a long preamble. Here's what the Lord's done for you. Uh, here's what the blessings that will come from obedience. Here are the curses that will come from disobedience, okay? Now, the Assyrians... Um, who, who displaced the Hittites were a much crueler empire. And their, their way of proceeding was might makes right, right? If we've defeated you, that means you submit full stop. And we will just impose whatever terms we want to upon you, right? Which, uh, which made them terrifying, right? I mean, they, they, they have all these, I mean, I think I've mentioned this before, but they, there's political propaganda from the Assyrian Empire that's, that's like, it looks like nightmares, right? It's like people being beheaded and disemboweled and you know, like, like, like the king's drinking blood and stuff like this. It's just terrible, right? Um, so Assyria was terrifying, uh, and they, they, they begin to conquer the entire Mediterranean basin, and the northern kingdom succumbs to their power, Right? Uh, but then, you know, uh, in Isaiah, where all of this stuff is prophesied, uh, it says that Assyria is simply Yahweh's rod, right? The rod by which Yahweh will punish the nations. And as soon as his work through Assyria is done, Assyria itself will be punished, which is exactly what happens. Um, Babylon uh, uh, decimate, comes, comes up to, to power and begins to decimate the Assyrian Empire, right? Babylon's strength begins to grow. 
And Babylon then uh, conquers all of the territory that Assyria had formerly uh, conquered. And then Babylon begins to take aim at Judah and Jerusalem. So under its king, Nebuchadnezzar, the walls of Jerusalem in the southern kingdom are breached. And its leaders are taken into exile. So thus the once proud nation of Israel is first divided, right? In that initial division under Rehoboam. And what does Christ say about a house that's been divided? It cannot stand, right? So the once proud nation of Israel is divided. A house divided cannot stand. And ultimately, it is brought to nothing. And in exile, Israel is forced to learn how to worship God, Yahweh, in a strange land. And not treat Yahweh as if he were their particular tribal deity, right? Yahweh is a universal God. He's the one who created all things. So therefore... He cannot be the particular possession of Israel, though he is given a particular intimacy with himself to Israel. He cannot be manipulated by Israel. And what's fascinating about the worship of Israel vis-a-vis the other nations that surround it is that all the other nations that surround it, magic uh, worship looks a lot like magic. I mentioned this last time, if y'all remember. Um, but but the, the way in which worship is shaped is it, it, it is an... Um, a particular set of sacrifices and intonations that are designed to get um, control over the gods so that the gods do what you want, to propitiate the gods so they do what you want, right? But Israel's religion is always responsive religion. It's a, it's a religion that's designed to facilitate communion between, uh, between Yahweh and the people of Israel, but not, to, not, not so that the people of Israel may manipulate Yahweh, right? The people of Israel are always to be obedient and responsive to Yahweh rather than imposing their purposes upon Yahweh. But of course, the Israelites don't want that. The Israelites want a manipulable God, which is why they continually turn to the Baals and the Asherahs, right, to get what they want, right? Uh, and their rituals are a lot of fun. They're a lot of fun to engage in, right? Baal's religion is like, is frenzied. It's like high energy, high octane religion, right? Um, it's exciting religion. Um, Asherah's religion is sexual, right? It's sacred prostitution. You get to have sex with whoever you want, and that's your religion, Right? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, the poles. Well, it's phallic imagery, right? It's, it's fertility imagery. So this is, this, is, uh, this is a religion that will enable uh, you to have an abundant harvest and many children that are healthy, right? That's the point of the religion. So you go to the pole, the phallic symbol, right? You have sex under the pole with the sacred prostitute, and then that, and that, act of worship, that act of obedience, that act of loyalty to the Asherah, what's meant to happen is you gain, you gain the blessing of Asherah by having propitiated her so that then you get the abundant harvest and the, and the, the children that you're, that you're seeking, the, the, the heritage that you're seeking, okay? Yeah, that, uh, I'm not as familiar, so. Um, there, but there is, there's always a symbolism, right? So that it, it is figuring what it is meant to uh, to to get or to acquire from the gods, right? So um, we can say, I mean, like you can you can. It's almost um, a one to one correlation. It's very traceable. So a little bit of study on that would I think repay a lot of dividends. Um, okay, but but Israel's God is not like this, right? Israel's God will not be manipulated. So uh, in, in exile, Israel is then forced to learn how to worship God in a strange land. And what's what's amazing about Deuteronomy, right, in, in 29, Moses says, you're not going to obey. Like, you're, like your, your heart has not been turned to God, so you're not going to obey. And all these things are going to happen, and the land is going to be basically laid waste. And it's going to be so empty of people, inhabitants, and, and creatures 
that, uh, that people will come by and say, why such wrath poured out on this place? And, and then uh, the people will say, uh, and, then, and then you will say to them that this is what happens when the people of God defect from God, right? But, but then in 30, it turns and it says, but that does not mean the Lord has abandoned you. Actually, in the exile that you will experience in these, these different nations, wherever you go in these different nations, you will learn the meaning of this covenant, right? The, the meaning of this covenant will be, in fact, written on your heart. You will learn that God is the universal sovereign deity. He is no competitors. Uh, and you'll learn how to worship the universal God in that strange land. So, uh, the, you know, there's, there's this, this really um, excruciating psalm, right? The excruciating psalm of exile, Psalm 137. It's a, it's a deep psalm of lament. But it's the, it's the Israelites beginning to grapple with the meaning. Like, how can we worship God outside of Zion? Sorry, by the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars we hung our harps, for there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? If I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. So there's this, this sense of, of, of distantiation, like that where we are meant to worship is Jerusalem. This is the configuration, the proper configuration of the worship of Yahweh, and we're not there. And so we're having to figure out how do we sing our songs in this foreign land. And Psalm 119 has this profound uh, section uh, beginning around verse 58, which is describing how the Israelites must learn how to worship in exile. And it says, I made your songs into, sta- I, mean, I made your statutes into songs to sing in my exile, right? So this is how Israel, Israel's discipline to begin to learn how to worship Yahweh in exile. And so in exile, they learn that he is not like the gods of the nations. He's a universal God. He can be worshiped anywhere. He can care for them even in Babylon, Right? And you get this word that Jeremiah speaks um, in, in a prophetic utterance about what's going to happen. This is, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This is not going to be short. This is going to be long. You're going to die in exile, right? This whole generation is going to die in exile. So he says, what does he, tell, what does he say to do? Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease, right? Don't give up hope. Don't despair. Increase. Don't decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. So although you are a minority in this place, although your loyalty is to the Lord God and not the gods of the nations, seek the peace and prosperity of that place where God has placed you. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage, that they encourage you to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord God. So this exile is willed by God. This is what God intends for the people of Israel, actually. And we get these amazing texts that come out of the rumination of the experience of Israel, Israel in the exile. Daniel and Esther are written, as Lee Beach says, a biblical scholar, as advice for exiles. How to remain faithful in a place that doesn't acknowledge God and whose worship and way of life is contrary to everything the Israelites proclaim and believe. So these texts show how Israel uh, is becoming what Jonathan Sachs calls, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs calls, a creative minority. 
These texts say, as Sachs indicates, that it is possible to survive in exile with your identity intact, your appetite for life undiminished, while contributing to the wider society and praying to God on its behalf. And this is an idea that will go on to have tremendous purchase in the early church. First Peter presupposes that the church is the people of God in exile. The church that sojourns is in exile in every place. And when you read the Apostolic Fathers, who are the first writers outside of the New Testament, right? they describe, when they write to the church, they say, to the church that is in exile in this place, right? in Ephesus, right? or in, in Philippi, or in Thessalonica. right? You're the church who sojourns in this place. You're the church that's in exile in this place. So it's, a, it's an idea, this idea of exile, um, the possibility even of flourishing in exile that has great purchase in the minds of the early Christians. Um, so what it means to be a people who are in exile but loyal to the covenant God, the Lord God of Israel, it means that the hearts of the people of God are to be loyal to God above everything else, right? Every other God that competes for space in the heart of the people of God. And that whether that's like you know the gods of the nations and their idols, or that's things like money and sex and power, which, it, which you know, those things are, are ultimately about, um, honestly— um, our hearts, the people, hearts of the people of God are to be loyal to God above everything else, above all of those things. And that's, in fact, what faith primarily means in the New Testament, right? We've, just, we've heard faith described as trust, and that's perfectly legitimate as far as it goes, but it actually doesn't cover the fullness of the range of meaning in the New Testament. Faith primarily means loyalty, um, steadfastness, faithfulness. Um, and we still get this primary sense of the word faith in, in words like fidelity or faithfulness, Right? Um, these words have that primary connotation of loyalty, and that's really what faith means in the New Testament. So this loyalty that, that is expressed to God in faith will make the people of God alienated from the societies around them in every age, right? So the things that, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> that the nations and the empires of this world are interested in, right, that they're, that they're most energized by, that they're most organized around, that their greatest loyalty is to, the people of God are always alienated from those things. Our hearts are about something else, right? But that does not make us hostile to or afraid of those societies, right? It makes us fully immersed within those societies while having our hearts allied or loyal, or loyal to something else. And it's precisely because the people of God have hearts that are loyal to God that they are most concerned for the people and societies around them because they recognize that that's actually what the heart of God is about, right? So do you understand how that works? Our hearts are most loyal to God, but because God's heart is about the nations, our hearts are therefore about the nations as well. And so by, sorry, go ahead, Kate. Of, of Jews from this tribal people 
is one who has new identity to reach out no matter where they are in exile, but not be alienated. I, I don't mean to quibble over no, it's one fine. word, yeah. Now, let me let me address it because I think it's a great question. Um, so for the podcast, Kate is saying, "Well, no, just people can't hear it if you if it's just you saying it." So uh, for the podcast, Kate is saying, "Isn't the word alienated too strong? Set apart would might be a better word." Here's my re- my rejoinder to that is that it depends upon the intensity of hostility and disagreement with the posture that the people of God have in the society where the people of God are resident. Um, so. If the hostility is great, alienation is not an inapposite word, right? But the question is, what does that alienation then engender in the people of God, right? Um, where there is a closer feeling of alignments, um, set apart might be appropriate. Though I don't know that it, um, I don't know that it actually does convey the sense of distantiation that needs to be there, um, even when there's a perceived sense of of, of alliance. And and the reason I say this is because of the history of Christendom, right? In the history of Christendom, what we experience is a sense that there's a close alignment between the values of society and the values of the, of the scriptures, where, where the reality is actually that that's, there's a kind of seductiveness to that that falsifies the narrative of the gospel and weakens it, right? And I actually think that uh, you know, a reading of 1 Kings in light of the experience of Christendom is really valuable, right? First thing, first King, first and second Kings becomes a kind of paradigm through which we can understand our own experience, right? As Christians becoming weaker and weaker in the hold, the tether that the gospel has upon our imaginations, um, and a descent into decreasing loyalty to God and increasing loyalty to these idols. So I think Actually, alienation is probably not too strong for any civilization, but I think the resonance of that word is going to be particularly acute when the hostility and the sense of, of being embattled to one measure or another grows greater between the people of God and, the, and the, the host society in which they find themselves. But that sense of exile is, I think, really, um, again, as I said, it has a, has a particular hold on the, on the early Christian imagination. So um, I wouldn't want wouldn't to jettison that. Um, the, there's a, actually, a, funnily, a, a dialectical materialist philosopher named Lezek Kolakowski who uh, found a whole bunch of value in engagement with Christian theology. Uh, and in particular, this theme of the exile becomes really important for him. So for him, he, as he narrates human existence, the human condition, he says exile is the permanent human condition. Um, so there is a sense of, of uh, permanence um, here below to this theme of exile in the human imagination and consciousness as an explanatory matrix, actually, for thinking about human experience. Um, all right, so, so again, uh, the people of God find themselves set apart, right, or in my, my terminology, alienated from the societies around them in every age, but not hostile to or afraid of those societies. In fact, permanently engaged in those societies. Um, and it's precisely because their hearts are loyal to God they will be most concerned for the people and societies around them. And by their actions, they bless and make a contribution. They pray for those who are around them. Um, but, the, but the mode in which we live our lives is different, or we organize our lives is different because our loyalty, our primary loyalty is to God. So uh, there's a, a, a really fabulous third century text called the Epistle, uh, of, the Epistle of Mathetes, or Disciple to Diognetus. Uh, and it says that, in every society, Christians are resident, um, and they don't have a distinctive mode of dress, or and they participate in all the institutions of society, um, but they they don't live like the rest of society, right? Uh, they share a common purse, but not a common bed, right? Whereas the nations around them 
do the opposite, right? Everybody like grasps on their, onto their possessions uh, and, and then sleeps around. Um, Christians can't live like that because our loyalty, our primary loyalty is to God. Okay, so um, again, I think you know, it's, it's helpful in some ways to think about Jonah as a parable, which is advice for those who are in exile. In Jonah, we see that the sovereign Lord cares not only for Israel, but even for the nations that have enslaved Israel, right? Nineveh, what's Nineveh? Nineveh is the capital of Assyria, the empire that has conquered and enslaved the Israelites. Uh, this cruel, horrifying empire. Uh, and we've already seen, actually, the Lord's heart for these great enemies of Israel in the book of Kings, right? Before the exile. In 2 Kings 5, the Lord commands Elisha to heal Naaman, who's the commander of the armies of Aram, the enemy of Israel, who's been conducting raids and stealing people and subjecting them to slavery. He's a Syrian, Naaman the Syrian, okay? Um, so he's this cruel master. And in fact, the person who, who um, writes to Elisha and says, will you heal this man, is a woman that has been captured in one of these raids, enslaved, and forced to marry Naaman. Like, this is terrible stuff. But she recognizes that God's heart is actually to convert and to heal this people that has, be, has been so hostile to God's purposes. And Jonah doesn't want to go, right? He doesn't want to go to, uh, to Nineveh, and, and Elisha doesn't want to heal Naaman, right? Um, but Jonah doesn't want to go to, because Nineveh is, is the worst enemy of Israel. In human terms, this makes absolutely no sense. This is a recipe for further enslavement, right? For pushing further into your own suffering. And this is terrible. Um, but, uh, but, but, you know, Jonah, and, and I think in some ways Elisha too, have to be educated out of this understanding, right? For Jonah has come under the spell that Israel is an ethnic tribe, just like all the others. And of course, it was never meant to be that. Um, in fact, you know, just to, just to make this point a little bit sharper, it's Yahweh's multi-ethnic nation that is elected from among the nations to be the instrument of his salvation. That's what Israel is. Already when Israel leaves Egypt, it is multi-ethnic. The, the nation that, leads, that leaves Egypt in the Exodus is not just the Hebrews. It's a mixed multitude, right? So it's Hebrews, but it's also all of those people from Egypt that saw the mighty works of Yahweh and were persuaded that he's the Lord God. It's a mixed multitude that comes out of Egypt. So Israel was never meant to be an ethnic tribe like other nations. It was meant to be the multi-ethnic people of God uh, that was the instrument of his salvation to the nations. All right, so the exile, as I said, right, is the time when Israel is meant to learn how to be a creative minority, to be loyal to God above all, but also concerned for the nations around it. And the remarkable literature that is in our canon that's kind of advice for exiles comes from this time. Um, but in the experience of exile in first Assyria and then in Babylon, um, a new kingdom then arises who are the Persians. Okay, So again, remember I've said that the history of nations is the history of the rise and fall of empires. Uh, so you've got first you've got Assyria, and then you've got Babylon, uh, and then you've got the, the, you've got the Persians. And the, the powerful ruler of the, of the Persians is a guy named Cyrus. And Cyrus conquers the Babylonians. And he has a very different religious policy than the Babylonians had. So remember, the Babylonians, when they conquer a nation, they take the best and the brightest out of that nation and bring it back to Babylon, right? To serve Babylon as slaves, um, educators, and, and you know, uh, people in high positions because they are, they are the best and the brightest of the nations. But Cyrus has, an, has an, a different religious policy. His policy is to send the exiles back to their homes and then give them resources to rebuild the walls of their cities and their places of worship. Right? So he thinks that in doing so, it's very pragmatic. If I do this, then the nations will love me more than they love the Babylonians and the, and the Assyrians, and then they'll serve me. They won't be in re constant rebellion. My empire will last a lot longer, right? 
Um, so that's what he does. Um, so, you know, Israel is, is able to return to the promised land. Uh, first Ezra goes and then Nehemiah, they're, they're sent there to rebuild the walls, to restore the worship of Israel. And, and most and first and above all, to rebuild the temple, right? So um, they go and do that, right? And they, they rededicate the temple. But Jerusalem and especially the rebuilt temple are nothing like the splendor of the original, right? So there's a continuing sense of being in exile. Even though we're back at home, we're still in exile, right? This is terrible. And the people actually weep when they see the temple. When the temple is dedicated, they weep because it's nothing like the glory of the original. The exile is not over because all of Israel has not been regathered to Israel. It's just the select company of people who've been regathered, right? Israel is still dispersed among the nations, and the presence of God is not there in the way it was, right? God is, God's spirit has not come back into the temple and reanimated it. So, so this is terrible, right? This is, this is, there's a sense of the beginning of the end of the exile, but not the end of the exile. There's no conclusion to it. And then moreover and more importantly, Israel is still ruled by foreign powers, okay? So, so Israel is in this terrible place where it seems like the exile has ended, but the exile has actually not ended. And so both in Israel and among the diaspora Jews, uh, there is this, there's this profound sense that something more needs to happen. A new work of God needs to happen. Uh, and so a, a sense begins to grow that, the, that the, the distinctiveness of Israel needs to be preserved in a more fu- a fully orbed way. Um, so uh, in service of that, the synagogue emerges as a space in which to preserve the teaching and the ethnic distinctiveness of Israel among the nations, right? The practices of Israel and the teaching of Israel need to be preserved. So um, this happens already at the close of the Old Testament. And at the close of the Old Testament, there's a promise that Israel will be restored, right? That the exile will finally come to a conclusion, but it's nothing more than a promise. So then we have this 400-year period, right? The intertestamental period, so-called, right? The close of the Old Testament in Malachi until the, the, um, the, the opening of the New Testament. So, like, what happens during that time period, right? It's kind of like a, a silent period, as it were, from a biblical perspective, um, so we, we need to understand something about what happens in Israel, the, trans, the transformation that happens in Israel during that time period, if we want to understand who Jesus is and, and why it is that Jesus resonated, and repul- resonated with some people and repulsed others, right? Um, so Bartholomew and Goheen have a great chapter. So if you haven't read the chapter on the intertestament, the interlude period, that's really important. So I, would, I highly recommend at least target that chapter. So as they say, Bartholomew and Gohin say, there are five fundamental beliefs that shape Israel's life during the, intertestament, during the intertestamental period. The first one is monotheism. Okay? Second one is election, right? the sense of themselves as an elect nation. The third is the law or Torah. The fourth is land, the promise of the land. And fifth is a future redemptive act which will restore Israel. So you understand none of these are foreign to the mind of Israel prior to the intertestamental period. But there are in particular intensifications of all of these themes that happen. So the, the, the sense upon a monotheism that's, that's exclusive, right? So, you know, when scholars talk about the religion of Israel prior to the exile, they talk about it as henotheism, right? So they understand that the Lord God is chief among the gods, but they, they still recognize the presence of these other deities. Whereas the monotheism of the inter- intertestamental period becomes highly exclusive, right? The, the gods of the nations are nothing or they're demons, right? 
So then there's uh, this increasing sense of election, the, the, the election of Israel as the people of God um, that stands over against the rest of the nations. Uh, the particular emphasis on the law or Torah, the teaching that makes Israel distinct from the nations, uh, the focus on the land itself, and then the future redemptive act that will restore Israel, clear the way uh, for Israel to worship God and to rule itself, uh, and that they will be no longer ruled by these pagan overlords. Okay, So it's the struggle to maintain these beliefs that shapes the development of the intertestamental period. Israel continues, as I've already said, during this time period to be ruled by pagan powers, which seems to contradict what they believe, right? If Yahweh is king, then Yahweh should be king, right? So first it's the Persians, whose rule is mostly experienced as beneficent. But the Persians, again, history of empires, right? The Persians also go the way of the dodo, and they're conquered by the Greek kings. First, there's Alexander the Macedonian, okay? And Alexander is this... Is this uh, Toward a force of a personality. I mean, he's he's a really astonishing figure, um, and you know his his tutor. Anybody, anybody know who his tutor was? Aristotle. Aristotle, right? So an incredibly learned man, as well as uh, an, an unbelievable military strategist, charismatic leader, and so forth. So uh, Alexander conquers actually most of the Mediterranean basin, including Israel. Um, and he doesn't force Hellenistic practices on the Israelites, but Greek ideas and practices begin to saturate Israel's culture simply by the presence of this Greek culture, and most of all, through the pervasive influence of the Greek language itself. Um, all of that began to undermine Israel's own cultural and religious integrity as the singular people of God. So as Hellenistic culture begins to influence Israel, you begin to see this untethering of Israel's identity and its, its assimilation to Greek customs. Um, the effects of Hellenization, it seems to me, is akin somewhat to the influence of the internet in our day, right? It's this enormously powerful culture. It's brilliant. It's attractive. It's powerful, right? And it imposes uniformity of thought and practice wherever it goes. So it's actually, I think there's actually a pretty close parallel between those two things. Um, and above all, it's the Greek language that, that, that has this assimilative effect, right? So the Attic Greek of, of uh, Aristotle and Plato, it's a high form of Greek, um, an academic form of Greek, if you will, uh, becomes popularized. Uh, and so there's a, there's a kind of a more of a mercantile form of Greek that emerges, which is called koine. It just means common, common Greek. It's a street Greek, okay? Uh, and street Greek is the language of the Bible, okay? So that... The, 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 scriptures, the scriptures themselves are, in a, um, interestingly and ironically, an effect of the Hellenization of J Jewish culture. Um, so after Alexander, um, like his empire, of course, is divided uh, between his successors, and they fight over the legacy of the empire. So uh, there's one kind of group of kings, uh, one dynasty of kings in Egypt that are called the Ptolemies, uh, and they are one part of the... Um, the legacy of Alexander. And then uh, in Syria, another group of kings, a dynasty of kings called the Seleucids, um, fight over the possession of Israel. And both of them actually end up pursuing a policy of intense or acute Hellenization, right? So whereas Alexander had been more diffuse or indirect in his uh, allowance of the pervasiveness of Hellenization to come into play in Israel, uh, this, both the Ptolemies and the Seleucids pursue a much more intense policy of Hellenization. So the Seleucid king, Antiochus IV Epiphanes, who actually thought of himself as God manifest, um, begins to really pursue this policy, right? So Antiochus faces two threats. Uh, one of them is the growing power of another empire, which is Rome. So it's an, it's an external threat. 
and the other is from the ethnic diversity of the Greek empire itself, which threatens to tear apart the fabric of his empire. So he responds in two ways. One of them is to become a robber baron, right? He's got to get resources to fight Rome. So he goes into all of his client states and begins to impose really heavy taxes and to loot uh, the, the resources of his client states. So he even does things like he goes in and robs the, temp- the temple, right? He, he takes all the gold vessels and everything and all the statuary from the temple and melts it down so he can have gold to pay for his wars, okay? Um, and he also seeks a, 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 a profound... Um, uh, homogenization of his client states through this, this practice of, and, uh, and posture of acute Hellenization. Um, so 1st and 2nd Maccabees are actually all about what happens under his reign. Okay? So as I said, he loots, he dares even to plunder the temple, he arrogantly enters the sanctuary, he takes the golden altar, he takes the golden altar, he takes the lampstand for the lights, he takes all the utensils, he takes also the bowls, the golden censers, the curtain, the crowns, and all the gold decoration off the front of the temple. He stripped all of it off, it says. He took the silver and the gold and the costly vessels. He took also the hidden treasures that he found. Okay? So he loots the temple, right? Which is, can you imagine a more offensive thing that he might do to the Jews, right? And he, passed, he passes strict laws against everything that demarcates Israel out uh, as different from the nations, right? He, he forbids circumcision. He forbids observance of the Sabbath, temple sacrifice. He even burns copies of the Torah. And everyone who disobeys is put to death by cruel means. <coughs> and many of the Jews collaborate with him. They built a gymnasium in Jerusalem according to the Gentile custom. What this means is, so the Greeks all exercise naked, okay, uh, greased up and naked, okay. This is a rank offense to the Israelites for whom modesty is a, a very important value, okay. But the, the Israelites build a, a gymnasium in, uh, in Jerusalem and the Jews begin to exercise in this way, okay. Um, they, uh, they engage in some, some primitive forms of surgery in order to disguise their circumcision, and they, imba- they abandoned the Holy Covenant. They allied themselves with the Gentiles and sold themselves to wrongdoing. Uh, the king also uh, sent messengers or sent letters by messenger to Jerusalem and to the cities of Judah, ordering them to follow customs foreign to their land. Um, they prohibit burnt offerings and sacrifices and libations in the sanctuary. They, they command the Jews to profane the Sabbath and the feast day, to desecrate the sanctuary and the sacred ministers, to build pagan altars and temples and shrines, and to sacrifice swine and unclean animals. Okay, so that, that language or that, that practice is called the abomination that causes desolation, right? So when you see that language in Revelation, it's a, it's a throwback to this practice in 1 Maccabees, that which that was the abomination that causes desolation, is exactly what the Jews experienced underneath Antiochus IV Epiphanes, right? So similarly, that which would defane and profane the experience of Christ, the, the, the worship that's given to Christ, is experienced as an abomination which causes desolation on the pattern of what happens in 1 Maccabees. Okay, so uh, they're commanded to leave their sons uncircumcised and defile themselves with every kind of impurity and abomination so that they might forget the law and change all its ordinances. By the way, this is how ideological empires of every sort have always proceeded, right? You make people forget by, by removing the sedimented places of memory, right? You get rid of the Torah, you get, rid of, you get rid of the statues, you get rid of all the monuments and the artifacts of the faith so that people forget. Because people have short memories, right? So if you get rid of all of this stuff, this is how you get rid of memory. Uh, this is how you get people to commit to an ideology. So you can see it right all there in First Maccabees. Okay, so... The, 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 the chief um, 
the chief thing that happens that is the kind of straw that breaks the camel's back is on the 25th day of December, notice that, in 167 BC, Antiochus deliberately polluted the temple to desecrate it. He set up an altar to Zeus where the burnt, offering, the burnt offerings were, were originally offered, and he offered a pig, the most unclean animal in Jewish law, as a sacrifice there in the temple. And, they, and again, I said they referred to this as the abomination that causes desolation. This is the final straw for a number of Jews who rose up in rebellion. So uh, the rebellion begins when an elderly pre- priest, a guy named Mattathias ben Yohanan, who had been ordered to offer unclean sacrifice, refuses to do so. And he actually kills the priest who does offer the sacrifice and the Greek soldier who was there in order to make sure the law was carried out, right? So in his zeal, it says, that, uh, the text says that he was like Phineas, the Israelite in numbers who kills the Israelites who are committing idolatry and adultery uh, with the people of Moab, right? So he's another Phineas. So Mattathias then flees to the desert because he's obviously going to be killed for what he's done. And he organizes a band of rebels out there in the desert. And he, he dies out there in the desert. His son Judah, <coughs> one of his five sons, assumes leadership of the rebels. This is the famous Judas Maccabeus, or Judah Maccabee, right? Uh, Judas, Judas Maccabeus means Judah the hammer. And he's so called because he hammers at the enemies of Israel. And his followers become known as Maccabeans. So although the Maccabeans are massively outnumbered by the Seleucid army, they, they achieve all of these incredible, miraculous victories over the Seleucid kings. And three years to the day from Antiochus' desecration of the temple, Judah Maccabee rode into the city of Jerusalem to shouts of, Hosanna, Lord save us, and the waving of palm branches. So again, there's all of these resonances with the ministry of Christ that we see in this intertestamental period, right? Um, when, they're, when they're describing Christ as Messiah, they're like, you're another Judah Maccabee, right? Like, you're coming to save us. Hosanna, palm branches, right? So Judah Maccabee cleanses the temple and rededicates it to the Lord, and there's a new feast that's instituted called Hanukkah, which is mentioned in John, right? Um, and it celebrates the rededication of the altar for burnt offerings. So the Maccabeans fought for 20 more years against the Seleucid kings, and remarkably after this, there's an 80-year period of Jewish independence and self-rule under the Hasmonean dynasty, the descendants of Judah's older brother, Simon, until the Romans end up taking over, and they depose the last Hasmonean and appoint the Herodian kings of, of Judah as their client kings, which is now a Roman vassal state. Okay? So again, Israel is finding itself under rulership of pagan kings again. So it's like, what the heck? I thought this was the end of the exile. No, it's not. Here are the Romans. What's happening? Right? How do we interpret this? What needs to happen? A miraculous intervention from the Lord needs to happen again. And there's this intense expectation that's being set up in the hearts of the people of Israel. The Lord has to move. He moved. We saw him move 80 years ago. Do it again, Lord. Free us. Deliver us. Save us. Hosanna, right? Um, so this event, this event of the, of the Maccabeans uh, cleansing the temple and purifying it, rededicating it, like the Exodus, became for the Jews a defining moment in their history. God had acted to deliver his people, restore his temple, and vindicate his law. This is Bartholomew and Goheen. And since God had visited his people once in this dramatic act of redemption, surely he would do so again. But by 63 B.C., Rome is now the great political power of the world. And Pompey the Great enters Jerusalem. He takes it over in a rule that would last for 500 years. Rome ruled Israel through its client kings, the Hasmoneans, then the Herodians, and finally through directly through procurators, including Pontius Pilate. 
And they even appointed the high priest to serve in the temple. Rome rules in a, similarly to the Greeks, but in a more intense way through force and fear and intimidation, trampling on the cultural sensitivities of their conquered peoples, taxing them into penury, poverty, forcing their own brand of Hellenistic culture down stubborn Jewish throats and meeting out savage punishments to any who oppose their will. And so, like the Greeks before them, the Romans elicit profound rebellion in the hearts of the people. And under this regime, the ethnic antipathy between Jew and Gentile reaches an all-time crescendo. And there are occasional rebellions that would break out. And the Romans had their own peculiar way of putting down these rebellions, the cross, right? The Romans invented the cruelest means of punishment and torture that's ever been devised in the cunning of man, right? Uh, And so the cross is that. And so every rebellion would be met with crosses, um, there's a, a famous rebellion. This doesn't have anything to do with the Jews, but there's a famous slave revolt, because Romans all had slaves. Um, and there's a famous slave revolt led by a man named Spartacus. And Spartacus, you know, rebelled, killed his masters, and then raised an army, a slave army. And he defeated all these different Roman generals and, and, and uh, you know, uh, 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 imposed humiliation upon the Romans, right? But when he was captured and all of his followers... The Romans lined the Appian Way for five miles with crosses. And you could just walk down the path and see the, the naked slaves exposed, suffering, tortured, right, as a symbol. Don't mess with Rome, right? That's how Rome works. So under this regime, there's a, there's a profound ethnic antipathy that, that uh, reaches an all-time crescendo between Jew and Gentile. And so for all of this, for all of this cruelty and taxation and attempts to quell the spirit of the Jews, Israel remained one of the most challenging places for the Romans to govern. So during this time period, the Israelites come to think about history eschatologically. There's a strong division between this present age, which is cruel and savage and idolatrous, and the age to come, the Messianic age, where God would deliver his people and, and, and uh, do away with all of his enemies, right? The present age is characterized by sin and compromise, even on the, people, on the part of the people of God. Evil flourishes, even among God's people. But in the age to come, God would come to cleanse creation and put an end to sin. Again, the kind of dualism that's, a, that's operating in the imagination of the Israelites is not a physicalist dualism, right? It's not a dualism between body and spirit. No, the creation is good, and it needs to be redeemed and reconciled to God. It's a dualism of time. It's the age that we live in and the age to come, right? So we're going to see this language over and over again in the New Testament, right? And this is something that emerges through this experience, this encounter with, with, um, with paganism, right? In the, uh, being ruled by pagans in the promised land. So in the age to come, God would cleanse creation, put an end to sin, and the restoration would begin in Israel, but then even the nations would be gathered in at that time, right? So just think about the later prophets, right? Um, think about how Isaiah talks about the nations coming in. Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's astonishing to, to, uh, to remember how this prophetic imagination begins to emerge, and then it begins to intensify during this intertestamental period. Um, the work would be accomplished by a Messiah, a particular figure in whom the work of God would be concentrated, right? Would be would be focused, and that and uh, that that King, the Messiah, uh, would which uh, the word Messiah actually means anointed. So the anointed one, the King of Israel, uh, would would deliver the people of Israel as the instrument of God, and at that point, God would rule as King alone over Israel. So the way this hope gets cashed out among the people. 
um, how it gets cashed out kind of politically, as it were, is different. So there's a bunch of different kind of parties that emerge within Israel itself. So first, they're the Pharisees, okay? So the Pharisees um, are, are kind of nationalizers who arise in opposition to what they see as the compromise of the Hasmoneans with the Romans, okay? So again, the Hasmonean dynasty are, are descendants of Judah's brother Simon, right? It's a dynasty that descends from there. Um, over time, they become collaborators with these pagan regimes, and they become um, advocates of Hellenization. So the Pharisees are nationalizers who arise in opposition to this. They're animated by two ideas, separation from the ideas and practices of the pagans and obedience to Torah. And they begin emphasizing those aspects of Torah that make the Jewish people unique, circumcision, food laws, observing the Sabbath. The Pharisees are very politically active, and they're even willing to use violence to achieve liberation from the pagans. And there are parties that emerge even within the Pharisees themselves. The Hillel party and the Shammai party are the two most important ones. Shammai is often the stricter party. Okay, So two conflicts that are very relevant for the New Testament are the teaching on divorce and about commerce with Gentiles. Okay, The Shammai party says that a man may only divorce his wife for a serious transgression, like adultery. But Hillel allows it for any reason, including something as trivial as burning a meal. Okay, So Hillel relaxes the, 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 uh, the requirements for divorce, whereas Hillel intensifies them. On the issue of commerce with Gentiles, Shammai prohibits it altogether. No interacting with, with Gentiles whatsoever, whereas Hillel permits it. Okay, So we, we discover in the New Testament that Jesus is actually taking sides on these disputes that are, that are occurring within the Pharisees themselves. He's not disengaged from this stuff. He's fully engaged in it. And he's actually vindicating certain positions over others. So there's the Essenes. The Essenes want to reverse the assimilation and compromise that had arisen in Israel, so like the Pharisees, but their strategy is withdrawal, complete withdrawal from Israelite society. They believed that they alone were true Israel, and many withdrew to Qumran, a community outside of Jerusalem where they studied the scriptures and they prayed and they enforced strict Torah obedience. And they understood themselves to be the vanguard of God's army. When the Messiah comes, they would be the vanguard of the army. But until that moment, until the Messiah came, they chose the path of purity and withdrawal. Okay? You know, we're beginning to see some parallels, again, to how, to how do Christians live within a cultural moment, right? Um, all of these are like live options, right? So um, then there's the Sadducees and the priests. And these are the official teachers of the law and the representatives of Jewish religion. They're the ruling members of the Sanhedrin, the ruling council of Jerusalem, along with the Pharisees. And they are explicitly clients of the Romans. And so they're often cowardly and anxious, right? So John 11:48 has them saying about Jesus, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation, right? There's this anxiety for influence that, the, that we find with the Sadducees and the priests. Then we've got the zealots. And this is less kind of a single group than more of a kind of a subculture within the nation. And these are people who burn with zeal for the law, and they find great inspiration from Mattathias, that, that first priest who killed the, uh, the, the priest who was a collaborator and the, the, uh, the Greek soldier who was there to make sure he offered the sacrifice. They resisted compromise to court completely with paganism, and they used violence to achieve their ends. They're willing to be martyred. Uh, so one group among the zealots were called the Sicarii the daggermen, and they're so called because they carried around knives in their robes in order to assassinate uh, uh, Jewish collaborators, right? 
In some ways, these folks remind me of the anarchists of the 19th century, right, in the early 20th century. Y'all know that anarchism was a huge movement that, that uh, basically um, convulsed Europe and America? Uh, President McKinley was assassinated by an anarchist, interestingly. Uh, they started World War I. Okay, so these Sakari remind me a lot of, uh, you know about the Black Hand, right? Anyway, uh, we'll talk about that later. But um, they started World War I. Um, or they, they, they catalyzed, I should say. They, they, they were the initial uh, domino that set, set into place the chain of events that started World War I. I should put it that way. Okay, so uh, there's a group of zealots called the Sicarii, the Daggermen. They, they assassinate Jewish collaborators. Uh, they were thought of terrorists by the Romans, and they're mentioned in Acts 21. When Paul is arrested in Jerusalem, uh, and the soldiers are about to take Paul into the barracks, he asks the commander, may I say something to you? And he says it in Greek, right? So the, the soldier's surprised, and he says, do you speak Greek, he replied? Aren't you the Egyptian who started a revolt and led 4,000 terrorists out into the wilderness some time ago? So he's like, I thought you were a, a Sakari. I thought you were a dagger man, right? Uh, and Paul answers, I'm a Jew. No, I'm a Jew from Tarsus and Calicia, a citizen of no, ordin- from, of no ordinary city. Please let me speak to the people, okay? So he's making it clear that's not who I am, okay? So then the last is kind of the common people, and this was most of the people who were not part of any party, Half a million of them uh, live in Jerusalem, and about three million live across the Roman Empire. And these are people who share that messianic hope, but they're not part of any particular party. They learn about Torah and the synagogues. They celebrate the festivals. They pray. They keep the food laws and the Sabbath, and they circumcise their baby boys in the expectation of the coming of the king, right? So they're, they're, trying, they're, they're people who are trying to live ordinary lives of faithfulness, right? They keep their heart's loyalty, keep their heart's loyalty to the king, and not to the nations around them, right? But not doing so in a highly politicized way, in a quiet way. They're maintaining the traditions. They're maintaining the teaching. So Jesus' advent and his life and his death and the resurrection, Lord, I've only got 30 minutes to cover this? Okay. Uh, and it's not going to happen, y'all. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> happy to talk to you more later. Um, but Jesus' advent, his life, and his death and the resurrection only makes sense within this context, Right? If we, don't, if we don't understand all of these cultural things, Jesus' life and his death and re- resurrection will not make as much sense to us as they need to make, right? If we want to understand who Jesus is, we've got to understand uh, his Jewish identity, his Jewish context. Um, and, and in Jesus is, I think, expressed the hope that at last the heavens and the earth themselves are about to be renewed and restored, right? He is the Messiah who will deliver Israel, and in delivering Israel will deliver the creation itself from its, its, its subjection to the powers of sin and death. So Jesus shows us what salvation looks like. It's the power of God to heal and to make new, and it's vividly present in all of his words and actions as they are contextualized among his people. Okay? In his death, Jesus accomplishes that salvation. At the cross, he wages war against the powers of evil, the ultimate powers of evil, the depth powers of evil that, that hold the people in slavery and subjection to evil. And he defeats them. Yeah, would you mind closing that door, Jonathan? Thank you. He wages war against the powers of evil and he defeats them as he takes the sin of the world upon himself. And in his resurrection, Jesus opens the door to the new creation. And then, as Bartholomew and Gohin put it, he holds that door open and invites others to join him. So news about Jesus initially spreads by word of mouth, but soon many of these stories are written down and they're collected into narratives about Jesus' life. 
So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the ones that the early church regarded as authentically setting forth his life. And, and I, we, we don't have time to get into the canonization process, but it's important to note that the way in which the canonization process takes place is not first and foremost by pointing at which texts are authentic, but by saying, what is the apostolic preaching, right? The apostolic preaching is maintained verbally through what's called the rule of faith, and it's transmitted from generation to generation, and it looks, it's, it's formulated verbally in different ways in different times, but it basically is the truth about the Holy Trinity and about who Jesus Christ is, but the incarnation, ministry, life, death, resurrection of Jesus, okay, and his coming again in glory. And so whenever someone begins to teach something that is contrary to that, that's how it's opposed. It's really interesting is when Martian, who's the, you know, the first kind of generally, generally understood to be the first heretic, uh, begins to preach this, this Gnostic gospel where uh, Jesus is kind of a bolt out of the blue, the true God becoming, coming among us, right? And, and uh, in opposition to everything that came before with the Jews, right? So he, he basically cuts off the entirety of the Jewish canon, and he says, here's the canon. It's, a, it's an expurgated gospel of Luke, right? All the Jewish stuff kind of cut out of it. Uh, and then expurgated letters of Paul, right? Paul is, is his guy. His, his, it's the apostle of the Gentiles, right? So, you know, he's my guy. But so he takes all the Jewish elements out of Paul because he regards them as interpolations, additions to the text later on. And then he, he expurgates uh, Luke's gospel because Luke and Paul were tight, right? So, so Luke is, is Paul's gospel. Uh, but he takes all the Jewish references out of that because, again, those are interpolations. And that becomes his canon. And he forms a church around this. And the early church does not respond to Martian by saying, um, no, here's the authentic canon. They say, no, you're teaching contrary to the apostolic teaching because our rule of faith is this. It's that Jesus was born a Jew, he was born into Israelite culture, and he was truly incarnate, the, the God incarnate, right? So these two things are, are, are the central pieces that enable us to say to Martian, no, what you're teaching is false, right? And it's the, it's the lens through which they're enabled to ultimately point to which gospels are authentic gospels and which ones are not, right? So ultimately, this is not about text, it's about the tradition of proclamation of the apostles' teaching. Um, okay, but the Gospels, the Gospels are, are, of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the ones the early church came to regard as authentically setting forth the life of Jesus. And the Gospels are not like modern biographies at all. They don't try to give a precise chronological record of the events of Jesus' life. Rather, each of the Gospel authors comes with a very particular theological perspective. And they, sh and they shine light of the good news on, on a particular historical situation. They select events from the eyewitness stories of what Jesus said and did. And each evangelist interprets those events in light of the needs of his own moments in history, arranging those events in a particular way to convey the theological point that they want to convey. So all of the four Gospels have differences, okay, uh, in including in terms of chronology. So, you know, there's always a, a desire, I think, to create you know, a, a harmony of the gospel so that we can figure out the chronology. It's not, it's not an unworthy uh, thing to do, but, but to, to understand that that process will always be incomplete because that's not the, that's not the idea that the, the gospel authors are trying to convey to us. They, what they want to do is they want to shine theological light on who Jesus was. They want to show the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Um, that's, that's what they're trying to, to get across. So, Jesus' entire mission, um, as, as uh, articulated by the various gospel authors, hinges upon the coming of the kingdom of God, right? Christ comes to proclaim the kingdom of God. And in Jesus, the kingdom of God has come, and it has come precisely in himself. He is, as Origen describes him, the autobasileia, 
the kingdom of God in himself. Okay? So when Jesus begins his ministry in Luke 4, he opens the scroll from Isaiah 61 and he reads the first part. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the Lord's jubilee year. That's what he's coming to do, right? And in so doing, the kingdom of God is coming near, is becoming present in him. So unlike the Zealots and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Essenes, who are all united by this one particular thing, their loathing of the Gentiles, there is Jesus who advocates love of enemies instead of their destruction, unconditional forgiveness instead of retaliation, readiness to suffer instead of using force, blessing for peacemakers instead of hymns of hate and revenge. That's what Bartholomew and Goheen say. This is important because what Jesus is doing is in bringing the kingdom, he's restoring the perspective that the Israelites were ultimately meant to have, right? Rather than the one that became de facto normative because of the situation that they found themselves in. <clears throat> so again, we find that history is this complex negotiation. The providence of God superintends all of it. Through history, certain perspectives, expectations, hopes, horizons come into existence and begin to animate the people of God. But alongside of that, the presence of sin continues onward and produces attitudes, expectations, normative desires that are ultimately hostile to the purposes of God. And so they have to be redressed as the kingdom comes. So each gospel author connects Jesus' life and ministry to the work of God in history. There's a specific beginning point for each of the Gospels. And as you go through the, uh, the, the four Gospels, and, and ultimately in their, their, chronolo their chronological development, um, the point of beginning, or where you begin in the history, uh, goes further back. So Mark begins with John the Baptizer to connect him to the prophets. Matthew begins Jesus' story with a genealogy that connects him to Abraham. Luke goes further back, and he roots his story in Adam, to show his universal significance. This is for all humanity. And John goes further back behind that. He goes behind the creation itself to show that Jesus is the eternal, uncreated word present with God from the beginning. Jesus' birth is of earth-changing significance. His birth is the hinge of history, not just for Israel, but for the whole world. From a human vantage, Jesus is the representative of Israel, just as Israel is the representative of the whole world. So Jesus is the representative of Israel, and in being the representative of Israel, he is also the representative of all humanity. But from a divine vantage, Jesus' birth is the incarnation of the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. He is conceived and born miraculously, not conceived naturally through his legal father, but by the power of the Holy Spirit overshadowing Mary. And when we read about that overshadowing, we should get the allusion to the Holy Spirit brooding over the waters of the deep, fructifying the creation so that it can multiply and teem with creatures. So here is the new Adam that will save the whole world so being conceived. Though he is in, born in the line of David and born in the same birthplace as David, Bethlehem, making him the Lion of Judah, as Revelation 5.5 5 says, and the shoot that springs up from the stump of Jesse, as Isaiah 11.1 1 says, his own do not recognize him. And the birth announcement is made to outsiders, to shepherds, again, showing the heart of God with the vulnerable, which we see all throughout the scriptures. And the angelic messenger who announces the birth is joined by a great company of heavenly soldiers. Okay, that's important. 
that we, that, we, that we translate this as heavenly soldiers. That's exactly what it is. It says, uh, the, the Greek is plethos stratios, many heavenly soldiers, not a choir, as Bartholomew and Goheen point this out, right? It's not a choir. It's not a heavenly choir. It's a company of heavenly soldiers. And we're meant to think here again. This, there's an allusion to scripture. The allusion is uh, when Elijah prays that God would open the eyes of the servant of the, of the king of Israel, right? So here's the passage from 2 Kings. The man of God sent word to the king of Israel, beware of passing that place because the Arameans are going down there. So the king of Israel checked on the place indicated by the man of God. Time and again, Elisha warned the king so that he was on guard in such places. So, so the king is prevented from going to where the Arameans are, are so he's not defeated or captured. And this enraged the king of Aram. He summoned his officers and demanded of them, tell me, which of us is on the side of the king of Israel? Because the king of Aram, he's like, the king keeps avoiding me. It must be some traitor in my midst. There's a mole somewhere in here. None of us, my lord, none of us, my lord, the king, said one of his officers. But Elisha, the prophet who was in Israel, tells the king of Israel the very words you speak in your bedroom. Go, find out where he is, the king ordered, so I can send men and capture him. The report came back. He is in Dothan. Then he sent horses and chariots and a strong force there to Dothan. They went by night and surrounded the city. When the servant of the man of God got up and went out early the next morning, an army with horses and chariots had surrounded the city. The armies of, of Aram are there. Oh no, my lord, what shall we do? The servant asked. Don't be afraid, the prophet answered. Those who were with us are more than those who were with them. And Elisha prayed, open his eyes, Lord, so that he may see. And the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. The company of all the soldiers of heaven, right there with Elisha. So when we see the birth announcement, that's the illusion, okay? This is the coming of the armies of the Lord to rescue his people through his anointed Messiah. For the Jews, this message means liberation from pagan armies, but it is couched in the language of the Roman imperial cult. The birth of Caesar Augustus was hailed as good news for all people, a gospel for all people. The Roman emperor referred, was referred to as Savior and Lord, Dominus et Deus, one who brings his peace the Pax Romana. By using this language about Jesus, the angels are announcing that he is a very dangerous baby, one who will challenge the authority of the empire and all the empires in the history of the world. The kingdom of Jesus, the kingdom of God, which becomes incarnate in Jesus, is not a kingdom that is from this world, but it is a, a kingdom which subverts every kingdom in this world by removing the loyalty of the people in that kingdom from the, from the, um, the things that, that animate that kingdom and putting them uh, in allegiance to Christ, who is the kingdom in itself. That's what this birth announcement is doing. Jesus is a Jew. He's born under the law, and he's submissive to that law. He's circumcised on the eighth day. He's purified 33 days later when Anna and Simeon praise God that they have sent the Messiah. And we pray Simeon's hymn, the, the Nunc Dimittis, you know, Latin for you're now letting your servant depart, every evening in evening prayer. Okay? That Nunc Dimittis is part of our piety as Anglicans. Lord, you now have set your servant free to go in peace as you have promised. For these eyes of mine have seen the Savior whom you prepared for all the world to see, a light to enlighten the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel hope of the world has come in Jesus. The amazing thing is that we know nothing else about Jesus' life during this period except that he grew in measure and stature with the Lord. 
It's amazing. A quiet period where Jesus is receptive and learning and submissive. The silence is important because it means that like every human being who's ever lived, he had to submit to education and formation. And in submitting to education and formation as the Son of God incarnate, he sanctified that in this process, that formation and families and those families, sorry, he sanctified the process of formation in families, and he sanctified families themselves, and he promised to heal all the wounds that come from those families in fulfillment of the prophecy in Malachi 4.6. I will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Actually, what Christ does in sanctifying this process of formation is to say that in Christ and in the church, the family is to become something other than what it has been. Not a place of destruction and desolation, but a place of life. And so the church is responsible to make families flourish. And if we don't do that, we actually are setting aside our calling that the church, the families in the church would be a central site of the church's mission, that families would become a domestic church, as John Chrysostom put it, that it would be a place of life and formation and where the common good is being, is being forged, actually. So Jesus himself suffered from all the wounding that happens in families, right? He suffered all of that. His own family doesn't understand his vocation. In Mark 3, it is his family that accuses him of being subversive and seditious and even of having a demon, right? And when Jesus is 12 before his bar mitzvah and is coming uh, to an awareness of his vocation, his family comes and rebukes him for leaving, them, for, for leaving them behind. And he submits to them and goes with them to fulfill all righteousness. So the early fathers of the church spoke about Jesus' life as a recapitulation of Israel. What that means is a reliving of Israel. Um, Everything that Israel lived and experienced, Christ lives again. And where Israel did it unfaithfully, Jesus does it faithfully, right? And by living Israel over again, he lives all of humanity again. Because remember, Israel is nested inside of the whole of humanity as the instrument of the redemption of humanity. So what Israel's calling is, is actually the calling calling that's given to the entirety of humanity. So in living the experience of Israel, Jesus is also living the experience of humanity. He's recapitulating all of humanity. Isaiah refers over and over again to Israel as the servant of the Lord. But as the narrative progresses, and especially from chapters 40 through 66, the title of the servant becomes focused more and more on a single representative person who is drawn from Israel and is, as it were, Israel concentrated. Okay? The servant is Israel, but then increasingly the servant becomes a single person from Israel who is the servant. And this person is described, again, the person is described in Isaiah as the servant of the Lord. The New Testament unanimously sees Jesus as this servant, as Israel concentrated. John tells us, after quoting from the most well-known suffering servant passage, Isaiah 53, he says, Isaiah said all this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. Okay? Jesus is Israel concentrated. But the shocking thing is not just that the Messiah had come and that he was Israel concentrated. Many, many groups had, that had discussed this idea. They, they thought that the Messiah would come and be Israel concentrated. The shocking thing was that the servant of the Lord was also the Lord himself. The God of Israel had come near, had pitched his tent among us, right? 
John begins his gospel that way. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The Savior of Israel is the servant of Israel, and through Israel, the Savior and servant of the whole world. Because Christ is both the faithful representative of the covenant with Israel, the servant of the Lord, and because he is the God of Israel incarnate, he lives a representative life. And recapitulating and reliving the story of Israel, he does it faithfully, loyal to God above all things, and in serving and blessing the people around him as a prophet, a priest, and a king. Okay? He has power to do this because as God incarnate, he is not subject to sin and death, the power of those things. He actually has the power to fulfill this vocation because he has not been corrupted through sin and death. So in recapitulating and reliving the story of God, he does it in three ways, as prophet, as priest, and king. We kind of already touched upon these things earlier in the class. And this is beautiful, of course, but how does it help us that Christ recapitulates or relives Israel and therefore humanity and does so precisely as the incarnate God of Israel living as a human? Why does that help us? How does that help us to actually live differently or to be different? The New Testament describes the benefit that this gives us in terms of union with Christ, okay? being in Christ or in the Messiah. So through baptism... And through faith, which again, remember what faith means. It means preeminently and above all things, allegiance or loyalty, right? So through baptism and through the loyalty of faith, we belong to Jesus. We are really in him. His humanity becomes ours. His representative humanity becomes the thing that we are included into, merged into mystically, spiritually, by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what the Holy Spirit does, is to make Jesus' humanity our humanity, so that everything that he is, we also become. And Paul speaks about this when he's mystically trying to reflect on what the meaning of that is. He comes to describe the church as what? What's the central language that Paul uses to describe the church? The body of Christ. Yes, we're made into the body of Christ by the Holy Spirit, merging us into his humanity. There is, as the fathers of the church love to say, a wondrous exchange between his humanity and ours. And through his humanity, Christ mediates to us his divinity, his divine nature. We are made partakers of the divine nature in the audacious language of 2 Peter 1.4, right? We are stabilized and renewed and regenerated in our humanity through the contact which we then receive, the participation which we receive through his divinity. Okay? We're given access and intimacy and strength um, by contact, by participation um, with the God of Israel. And we're enabled to overcome the power of sin and death and the devil in our own lives by being in Christ. We are enabled to resist those powers, to continuously put on Christ. That's Paul's preferred language for talking about how do we access this. We put on Christ, and we say no to the power of sin. So the contest between the powers of sin and death in our lives, the old man, as Paul puts it, right, and the power of Christ working in us, the new man, as he puts it, is the shape of human existence post-Pentecost, 
We call that spiritual warfare. It's a warfare, Paul tells us, that is not with flesh and blood as we mistakenly believe in our age of sacralized politics, but it's with the powers and principalities that wage war against the kingdom of God, right? In this present darkness, this present age, as he says in the book of Ephesians. So again, remember I talked about the hope that begins to emerge in Israel as not being a, a, a dualism between flesh and spirit, but a dualism between the times, right? Redeem the time for the days are evil. Paul shares that same idea that there is a that there is an evil age that we live in and we wait for the coming of the Messiah. The messianic age has begun, but it overlaps with this age of evil and darkness. And so there's a profound darkness and warfare that happens in our lives. And that is why the central calling of every Christian is to pray, to participate in that profound war that's being waged against the powers of darkness. That's primarily about what Christ is doing, but we get to share in that and participate in that as we are in Christ and as we put him on. Okay. So it is a war that takes place in the spiritual realm whose reality is much deeper and much greater than the material world, though of course it has implications for the material order, how it is that we actually uh, engage in the material world. So let me back up in the last 10 minutes and talk about exactly how Christ recapitulates and relives Israel and therefore humanity. So he does this, again, as I said, preeminently by being prophet, priest, and king. As a prophet, he teaches the word of God. He illuminates the hearts of the people, showing them the beauty and the attractiveness of God and denouncing everything in their hearts, and especially of the leaders of Israel, that is opposed to the beauty of God and his purposes for the creation. And he's a priest. He mediates faithfully between God and humanity to the extent that the early Christians began to speak about the temple of God, which is in Christ's body. So you remember in John's gospel that Jesus says when, when he's asked what sign he will give for the authority for his actions, he says, hey, tear down this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. And the people think he's crazy because the second temple took 40 years to build, right? But the temple, John says, of which he was speaking was the temple of his body. Christ is a priest. And finally, Christ is a king. And the chief way that this is expressed in Jesus' earthly ministry is in his healing. The demons claim kingship over the people that they have infested and held captive, but Christ demonstrates his kingship, his superior kingship over them. In Mark's gospel, Jesus, is ca Jesus casts them out, and they declare, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of Israel. He's the king. And we see it again in this healing of conditions that degrade the integrity of human existence. The healing of the paralytic, the healing of the man born blind, the healing of blind Bartimaeus. By the way, Bartimaeus' name is in there because he is a witness to Jesus. He's one of those that Luke consulted because Bartimaeus knows Jesus. The healing of the woman with the discharge of blood. These conditions all claim to exercise dominion and kingship over the persons who suffer. They claim to tell the story of these people, to narrate the identity of these persons who suffer from them. Their position in society is dictated precisely by these conditions. But Jesus demonstrates his superior kingship over them through a fresh recreation of the persons who suffer from these conditions so that they and others can see that although evil and suffering degrade and corrupt the good creation of God, God remains king, sovereign over his creation. He is capable of renewing it and refreshing it. 
And finally, and most powerfully, Jesus demonstrates his kingship by being sovereign over death itself. First in his ministry, Jesus raises three people from the dead. Jairus' daughter, the widow's son in the town of Nain, and finally and most dramatically, his own friend Lazarus. And these resuscitations indicate that not even death itself can claim, Jesus, can claim, can claim ultimate kingship. Even though, Paul says in Romans, until Christ, the reign of death was unchallenged. Death is and always has been the great challenger to the authority of God. It remains to this day the chief stumbling block that every believer and every unbeliever must reckon with as we, make, as we investigate this claim to the kingship of, of God. It is the chief challenger to the kingship of God, and therefore it is the last enemy to be defeated. So in his ministry, Jesus, is exer- Jesus exercises sovereignty over death. But more importantly, and more profoundly, and in an entirely novel way, in the death of Christ himself. So most modern preaching and teaching focuses on the circumstances of Christ's death. You know, the cruelty and savagery of the Romans, how shameful death on a cross is, how painful a death it is. And these are all true things, they're all worthy of focus, but it remains the case that they are not the focus of the Bible. The Bible is relatively unconcerned with the painfulness and the shamefulness of the cross. The Bible is focused on what the cross of Christ accomplishes. The cross is a charged symbol for the apostles who preach it and for those who love it and believe it. In the cross, Jesus confronts the dominion of death and he nullifies that dominion. By submitting to death, Jesus confronts death and he puts it to death. How does he do this? by being raised from the dead, by becoming the first fruits of the resurrection and securing the resurrection of the dead for all who belong to him. In defeating the universal dominion of death, Christ also defeats the power of death in our lives. Death is not just a fact, it is a power. It rules over us, it enslaves us, and it changes our behavior so that we do things that are in accordance with sin. Because death is the consequence of sin, and it also intensifies sin by increasing despair. And the fear and the anxiety that death produces makes us more deeply enslaved to sin. But because Christ submitted to death, again, he recapitulates or relives even that experience. He changes death. So Paul talks about this in Romans 5. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all, because all sinned, right? Sin entered the world through one person, and then death comes through sin. So all sinned, therefore, all died. And then he interrupts himself, and he says, yes, sin was in the world before the law, of course, but sin was not charged to anyone's account before the law was given. Nevertheless, the consequence of sin was there, that is, death. Nevertheless, he says, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses when the law was given, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who was the pattern of the one to come. So do you hear that note of recapitulation there in Paul? Adam was the pattern or the type of Christ. What Adam was supposed to do but did not do and therefore allowed death to enter the world, Christ did do and he did so faithfully. He is the faithful covenant partner. But the gift, he says, is not like the trespass. For if many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification, reconciliation with God. 
And then in Romans 6, Paul says that by recapitulating and reliving the experience of death, he submits to it undeserved because he has no sin and he thereby defeats it. It's not what he is merited or owed. And so he, he, he's able to defeat it because it is not what he is merited or owed. He is vindicated by being raised from the dead. That is what Jesus is owed. And, and because he is raised from the dead with a spiritual body which can never die again, he obtains the mastery, the sovereignty, the dominion forever over death. What does Revelation chapter 1 say? Behold, I know, we got the interviews. I'm almost done. One more minute. 30 seconds. 30 seconds. Okay, all right, all right, all right. He says, Behold, I was dead and am now alive. I am the living one. And I hold the keys to what? Death and Hades. That's the good news, my friends. That is the good news. The hope of, of every Christian everywhere for all time is the resurrection for the dead. That is the news that we have been united with Christ in order to proclaim both with our lips and in our lives. i got to stop because we have an interview. But, um, you know, questions, email me, and you can listen to it on the podcast. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. Thank you. Yes.